This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. When there's blood in the streets, uh Lift up, check under the carpet Many try but few become Master of the mark market Well, Jared Minak, mate, thanks very much for uh, for coming on Master of the Market I know uh, every Tom, Dick and Harry has a podcast But really appreciate your time and, and coming on the show Oh, you're welcome, Chris Good to be here, thank you There's not a lot of macro... Uh, thinkers or investors in Australia, I reckon it seems particularly compared to the rest of the world. So I've been desperate to to get a hold of you for a while. I just have to comment before we get into the interview, Minak Advisors website, I think it has to be the worst website I've ever come across in my history of web surfing. Uh, yeah, it's well, it's got under construction, I think. Uh, and it's been <laughs> under construction since I launched. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a fair way from the technological cutting edge, I've got to say. I've, I've mastered email. Um, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Insta. I'm not on Facebook. Um, I don't have a functioning website. And of course, the pandemic's forced me to come up to speed on Zoom. But that's about it. So yes, it's there. So it's, it's a bit like a dog pissing on a post. No one else can take the site, but I'm not going to do anything with it. <laughs> Very good, mate. Well, I uh, appreciate you being here. Uh, I thought to, 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 to get things underway, I thought China would be a really good place to start. It's been in, in the news a lot. This week and is always in the news a lot in Australia, uh, but been in the news around their their crackdown on on big tech and the, the tutoring firms in particular. But what do you make maybe of what's happening in China from the helicopter view? I think there's a few things, a few strands going on. Um, there's the economics, which perhaps we'll come back to, but a, a lot of this is politics clearly. And uh, Xi Jinping, as he's doing everywhere, asserting his, his authority. And I think the incentives for what they're doing with uh, commercial corporations reflects a few strands. One is just Xi Jinping wants no really alternative sources of power. And here I'm particularly thinking about the big uh, tech tycoons. So that's quite important. I think secondly, he he genuinely wants um, economic independence for China. And you could argue that the best and brightest going into technology companies trying to optimise the delivery of cat videos on social media is not the best place from a societal perspective for the best and brightest to go. And there's other places uh, in hard science that he would rather they direct their resources towards. But then we blend into the overseas tensions and the decoupling with the rest the rest of the world. And this is really a two-way story. Um, the US has imposed some regulations about Chinese corporates that are listed in the US that uh, in a couple of years will have to be audited by uh, US regulators. China has passed laws saying that you are not allowed to be audited by anybody else. So this is part of the disengagement between the two major geopolitical blocks in the world. And this is really facilitating it. It's a crackdown on cross-border finance, and it's going to encourage Chinese companies to come home, uh, if not to home markets in Shanghai, at least to Hong Kong. But of course, Hong Kong increasingly looks very little different to the mainland. So there's all these facets there, but it ultimately shows that in terms of, you know, what we think of as investors, the capital structure, you know, equities down the bottom, then you go up to the top of the capital structure you think is debt. Well, in China, there's one 
one item higher in the capital structure, and that's the CCP, the, the Communist Party of China. And that sits there, and I guess every investment in China has that CCP optionality to it, which frankly, I think means going forward, Chinese assets have to trade at a, at a valuation discount to other markets. And so do you think that move by China was, was maybe less about inequality, more that they want to build a country a bit more like Germany that's involved in manufacturing high-tech goods as opposed to the US where you've seen those big tech giants that have maybe become more skilled at building, you know, I think cat videos was the terminology you put it, but they also don't employ many people, do they, those big tech companies per, per capita and per how much they earn. They're really light on employment. Do you think it's clear that the CCP would prefer their economy was was in that actual manufacturing of, of higher, higher tech quality goods? I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, part of it here is uh, their alarm at the vulnerability of their economy to um, over, overseas supply chains and in particular, uh, US policies. And we've seen the US almost strike the death knell to important Chinese companies by either denying them access to technology and that's severely affected, although not yet killed, companies like Huawei, um, but also their access to the dollar global base, the, the global dollar based financial system, which has certainly been used to decimate companies in, in Russia. So with the long view that in a sense, uh, I think there's a destination competition between China and the US, this is effectively part of their buttressing their defenses, creating uh, less resilience on, on the US and developed economies just as we are doing the same thing the other way around. I mean, pre-pandemic, um, the US relied for 90% of its antibiotics uh, on China. I bet you that's going to change over the next few years, quick smart as well. So it's all part of this bigger geopolitical tectonic plate just grating against each other um, is absolutely a key ingredient in this decision. But as I said, I, I don't think we need to specify the one reason for these crackdowns. I think these crackdowns satisfy a number of objectives of the leadership. And in a sense, therefore, there's, there's a number of incentives for why they've done this. But that also underscores the point that this is not temporary. Um, they may slow down on some of these things, but we can see the direction of travel. And I would argue it's fairly unfriendly for many investors. And so talk to me about China's role on commodity markets. They've announced they're going to uh, increase some stimulus, which we know in the past has been huge for uh, for commodity markets. Is China still almost the only game in commodities or with so many other governments around the world announcing fiscal stimulus plans? Uh, are there other factors now besides just China influencing commodity markets? Chris, I think there are other factors at play. and I'd, I'd highlight two in particular. But, but to go back to your, your comment, I mean, China is still dominant. And if China were to, example, have a hard landing, nothing could say the commodity complex, but there are two other factors I'd highlight. The first is when I look around the developed world, everywhere I look, the demand for stuff is strong. And let me just list off a few things. Firstly, autos. Now we know auto prices have gone through the roof, but that's because there's enormous shortages. So there's going to be a huge surge in global auto production. Secondly, everywhere I look around the world, housing is booming. So it's not just an Australian story and it's not just a price story. And I guess this is a function. 
We all spent the last 18 months cooped up at home. We've all decided we want to do the big reno or move on to the bigger place. So housing activity everywhere in the developed world is very strong. Third, business investment indicators have picked up very smartly in most developed economies. That's true here in Australia. But it's also true in a lot of Europe. It's particularly true in the US. And business investment tends to be uh, concentrated on stuff. Yes, there is the IP, but there's a lot of equipment and also some structures that are uh, bought. Finally, government spending. Now, it's not just the quantum of government spending. We're really seeing it redirected. The huge gusher of cash that we saw last year from most governments were overwhelmingly cash income transfer payments to households and small business. But that's increasingly being redirected towards infrastructure and climate mitigation. Climate mitigation in particular is important because you can see this being a structural issue requiring a fairly high percentage of GDP on a, on a multi-year basis. So in other words, in the developed economies, after two or three decades that we became in increasingly light, GDP lightened up, there was less stuff and more brain matter in there, the pendulum swing back a little bit, only a little, but still it's, it's interesting to see at the margin. So that's the first factor aside from China, I think that's gonna play a role. The, the second is on the supply side. Um, what we saw last cycle was a huge, but ultimately ill-timed increase in supply side capacity in the aftermath of the GFC on the back of the V-shaped recovery in China that saw massive amount of extra supply come on to commodity markets just as the bottom fell out of the post-GFC cycle. And of course, we saw a huge bust in commodity prices. And many of the CEOs and CFOs running the big commodity companies today still have the scars from that uh, ill-timed expansion seven or eight years ago. And I think they're gonna show a lot of discipline in this cycle in increasing supply. So what you've got is, is China providing a bedrock of demand, incremental growth coming from the developed economies and not much flex coming on the supply side. Now, we've seen a big pickup in commodities. So a lot of this is in the price, but I think we could see on average, these prices hang around relatively high levels for two or three years. There will be variation between commodities. And one I will mention just because it's important to us is iron ore. I mean, clearly part of the supply story there is, is quite idiosyncratic and reflects the disruptions in Brazil. So you could have all these global preconditions for, for quite solid uh, commodity prices on average. But if the Brazilians get their supply back online, um, then you could see weakness there. But overall, to answer your question, I think there's more at work than simply China, but that's not to downplay China's role. Big moves by China are still massively influential in uh, commodity markets. And ESG sort of playing both sides of it, aren't they? It's creating huge demand for, you know, metals involved in the EV market, for instance, but they're also making production of copper, nickel and cobalt more expensive. And, and I guess uh, putting a spotlight on, say, cobalt being produced in countries like the Congo. So it's sort of playing both sides in, in that dynamic. Is that fair? Uh, yes, and I, I think it's potentially even more disruptive, and I'm not, I'm, I'm all for addressing global warming, um, potentially in the in the energy side, because we've seen almost no prospecting uh, or commitment to new supply 
in the energy markets for five years. In uh, the immediate aftermath of the GFC, the big swing producer for particularly oil was the shale sector in the US, but that was always a cash burn sector. Whereas now reflecting this new tighter discipline, I think shale will be far less responsive to, to price swings than we saw in that period. And all the numbers suggest that, yes, in, 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 by 2050, demand for hydrocarbon energy may be way, way down on where we are today, but it's not gonna fall in the next five years, whereas there's been almost no increase in supply. So I, I think there's a, as a base case, uh, we will see at least one last big surge in energy related prices, whether the companies themselves benefit from that in a, in a share price sense because of the ESG influence, I don't know. But um, I think that the, the, the tight supply really threatens a disruptive increase in energy prices at some stage over the next uh, three to five years. Just because you've got to kill supply before you kill demand, if you like. Otherwise, it just extends it, doesn't it? If oil prices are at 20 bucks, the, the drive for the consumer to go to an EV may take three years longer or five years That's longer. That's right. And even if it's mandated by regulation, uh, it simply takes time. We, we will be on a, a downward incline in terms of our energy use, although given the expansion in China, global demand uh, isn't about to fall anytime soon. Uh, and that's against the backdrop of, as I said, no real material increase in supply capability in, in oil over the last uh, five to ten years. And we still haven't opened up yet around the world properly, have we? So we, we probably haven't seen that post-lockdown no, spike or, or normalisation all around the world. Is that fair? No, we, we're, we're a while away from that. Um, I mean, what we're seeing now, you know, sadly, is the Delta wave uh, you know, set back things, but particularly in, in some of the emerging economies. I mean, the, the, the second and third waves going through Asia at the moment really are quite debilitating. Um, but as we're seeing everywhere, most obviously here also in Australia, there's a real debate about when, when we get back to full opening and that, that obviously affects some, some industries heavily, such as tourism, international tourism, which, which obviously uses, uses energy. Um, but even apart from the, the COVID related cyclical element, um, the fact is as China and India get richer, um, their structural demand for energy is going to pick up. And the sense you get is that while they may be seeing a mixed shift even today, such as their overall increase in demand, that their absolute demand for hydrocarbon energy sources is, is still going up. And that's counteracting whatever economy measures we're making in the developed world. So there's no real sense that global demand is falling, whereas we've seen this restriction on supply. And that's, that's bigger than just the pandemic. That's, that's a sort of a multi-year trend still intact. To shift gears for a bit, talk to me about the US. Do you think their fiscal program or, or spending is going to be enough to, to move them away from the, the disinflationary forces that have been in their economy for an extended period of time into an inflationary period? Or, or do you think they're going to be restrictive and, and they're not going to be able to, to get through enough to get the inflation that they the central bankers probably desire? Yeah, let me make a couple of comments. Firstly, when it comes to using fiscal tools, I absolutely believe it's a matter of uh, willpower, not ability. In other words, if they want to do it, they will be able to do it. In other words, the view out there that some people have that ultimately fiscal spending is counterproductive, I don't buy it. 
I think you can just push it hard enough if you want to, particularly when you've got central banks backstopping you, as we're seeing. I mean, effectively, we're seeing monetization. They're not seeing Jay Powell dropping bags of cash directly with Janet Yellen. Um, the whole transaction's being laundered by a brief period of private sector ownership, but this is monetization. So if you push that hard enough, you will get inflation. The question is, will they? And that ultimately is a political question. If it was left to the Biden administration by itself, I think it would. And on their current plans, I think they probably would do enough. Um, their current plans obviously include the 1.9 trillion that they passed as soon as they gained power. They now look like they've uh, signed off a bipartisan uh, trillion dollar infrastructure package. And then they're immediately gonna turn around and do a three and a half to $4 trillion um, unilateral Democrat only package that will get through Congress um, by this process called reconciliation. Now, all those numbers are enormous, but they are 10 year numbers. It probably adds up to, you know, one half to three quarters of a percent of GDP per year. But that's a nice bedrock of fiscal stimulus to have. I think that could be enough. If it was up to the Democrats and it, and it turned out not to be enough, then they would just dial it up. The biggest single risk to the outlook, therefore, is politics. If we were to see uh, the Republicans regain control of either House of Congress at the midterms next year, then all bets are off because the Republicans have a track record of stonewalling um, anything a Democrat administration tries to do. So. My mid-level conviction call is that we are in a new era, that after three or four decades where central banks were the absolutely dominant policy setting uh, institutions and the principal tool they used was monetary policy, that is manipulating interest rates. And fiscal policy was dialed down. It wasn't seen as an appropriate way to manage the cycle. And obviously the mantra was a fiscal austerity. COVID's transformed the landscape and we're now moving towards an era of fiscal dominance, that is fiscal policy taking the lead with central banks in the, in the back step, in the back. Now, if that change persists, then I think that changes almost everything from an investor perspective. I think it really does bring the curtain down on this uh, secular stagnation era, that the four decades of disinflation, the four decades of declining interest rates and we don't go overnight back to double-digit interest rates, something that took four decades on the way down. It was four decades of lower lows, lower highs. There were always cycles, but it was you know, this slippery slide down. We'll take a few years to go slippery sliding up, um, but we're at, I think we're on the cusp of a major secular change, and it's all to do with fiscal policy. Is it possible, you know, I look, listen a lot and read a lot about uh, the inflation versus deflation or disinflation debate, and people generally fit neatly into a camp. You know, they're, they're deflationists, they're inflationists, they're stagnationists, they're stagflation, whatever it is, they sort of have a view on the world and that neatly explains what they think is going to happen. Is it possible if, if you uh, define inflation as just all goods and services, including houses and asset prices, et cetera, not just what's in the CPI basket, that you can have strong inflation on anything that's desirable that tech can't make more plentiful and consistent disinflation or even, well, probably deflation really on anything that tech touches. Because when I look at, say, stockbroking fees, 
Technology's now touched stockbroking fees. Doesn't matter how much money the central banks print or how much fiscal stimulus there is, my stockbroking fees aren't inflating. They're on their way to zero. Um, and even with wa- the wage price discussion, you know, we've had really weak wage growth at a time of really strong asset growth, and we know that's caused huge societal issues. But the wages for CEOs, they've experienced huge wage growth because technology is not touching the CEO role and the hundreds of millions of new workers in China haven't really created more competition for those CEO roles. So is it possible people need to just look at this through a more nuanced lens rather than inflation or or deflation? Chris, I I absolutely agree that there's going to be a a huge dispersion um, in price levels and completely agree with you that the areas where tech is dominant um, will remain under disinflationary pressure. I still think it's worthwhile to though to, to, to use the overall label of whether we're in a disinflationary or reflationary environment because of the consequences it has, particularly for us as investors. Um, a disinflationary world is one where interest rates are, are declining or staying low. And uh, that's likely to reverse if we lead to broad-based inflation. And if that happens, and I go back to one thing you did say, which is uh, things that are desirable that are in scarce supply, um, the price may still go up um, regardless. I'm not sure that's true because- Not if interest rates are allowed to actually rise for an extended period. Correct. Because the things that have been desirable are in short supply are exactly the sort of things that people levered up to buy. And that ability to leverage up has been hugely enhanced by the decline in interest rates and also- uh, financial sector deregulation. I mean, you needed the two of them. One of them wasn't sufficient. You needed the two of them. Um, and if we see a reversal in interest rates, then asset valuations, the impact will be uneven, but on average, there's going to be real pressure on asset valuations. So what I'd look at the, the difference between pricing power is, um, you know, the ability for technology to lower per unit production costs. Um, if that's not there, there's a higher labour component because the only way we're going to get sustained inflation is to get sustained wage growth, then it's unlikely that the price of uh, your favourite meal at your favourite restaurant is going down. Um, But the price of what you can get on a smartphone probably will remain where it is now, which is close to zero. Um, And you're going to see those price discrepancies. What it means for asset prices, um, I think, is a very mixed bag, but on average, probably not so good. So I get the idea that if we move towards an inflationary environment, um, bond yields rise, interest rates rise, um, unless we go back to what we had post-World War II when they didn't rise, when you had yield curve control. When you hear Jerome Powell or um, you know, uh, Lowe in, in, in Australia talk and the language around jobs now, it's not just around inflation or price stability but, but jobs as well. If you were to graph the SP 500 and the jobs rate in America, it's almost perfectly correlated to let interest rates rise enough to bring down the equity market, which, you know, if we get an inflationary period, you could see as a, as a high probability event, that would be in stark contrast to a, a Fed that's looking to support the, the jobs market. In Australia, it, it feels like it's more the housing market that the, the central bank and and the politicians look to protect because of the wealth effect on retail spending and building and all the other flow on jobs that are attached to that. But I interpret any time I hear one of those central bank uh, governors speaking about jobs, 
in the US, to me, that means we're going to protect the equity market. And if inflation rises too, too high, we'll introduce yield curve control. Or in Australia, to me, that means um, we're, going to, we're going to really look after the housing market as best we can. Um, do you interpret those things differently? I think things are changing. Um, and let me uh, note a couple of ways that they are changing. In the aftermath of GFC, when policy rates very quickly got to zero, and so central banks had no more conventional tools left, and the policy consensus was that you don't deploy fiscal. In fact, you know, people very quickly flipped the fiscal switch to austerity after the GFC. Uh, central banks then moved on to, to QE, and that was designed to boost growth really through three channels. Uh, one was by getting long rates down, not just short rates, and they hoped that would encourage credit growth. Well, it didn't. Um, the second, and they didn't really shout this from the rooftops, but it was the reality, uh, they hoped QE would get their currencies down. But of course, if everybody's doing QE, uh, you don't really achieve that. The third channel was the wealth effect. Now, all the wealth effect is, is if I can make you feel richer, you'll save less, you'll spend more. In other words, in that environment, asset markets were the principal conduit of monetary policy to deliver stimulus to the real economy. So no wonder whenever asset markets said jump, central banks said, how high? Because we don't want to disrupt you. Well, that's not the way the world works anymore. The principal tool of stimulus these days is fiscal. And we don't, we're not nearly as reliant on the wealth effect, which by the way, didn't work anyway. We got asset prices back up, but the saving rate remained high. So we never got the, the drop in the saving rate that the wealth effect was meant to create. So I think central banks, after a cycle where they absolutely treated asset markets with kid gloves, uh, can put less weight on them. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to deliberately go out there to unsettle them. I'm not saying they will ignore the message from some readings on markets, for example, looking at what bond markets are saying or implied inflation expectations. But what I am saying is I don't think they'll jump at shadows or financial market instability today quite like they did in the aftermath of GFC because they're not relying on asset markets to provide the stimulus. The stimulus is coming via fiscal. And one thing I would say about the politics is if, if we got the perception that fiscal policy was driving Main Street and the Fed was unsettling Wall Street, I think that mix would be seen as a feature, not a bug of that policy setup. After a cycle where the reverse was the perception that everything was done for Wall Street and nothing for Main Street. The second comment you made is about um, uh, the comparison now to what we saw in the aftermath of World War II when we came out of there with a huge amount of public sector debt. And the way policymakers addressed that was so-called financial oppression. They effectively forced people to hold debt that was a terrible investment. Um, now, some people are saying that we're going to have to go through that again. I'm not so sure. Now, we've got a huge amount of public sector debt, so someone has to be the patsy. But we sort of know who the patsy is. It's the central banks. We don't need to force the private sector to hold uneconomic public sector debt because it's the central banks that's doing all the buying. What we've seen in the US, for example, over the last 12 months is the budget deficits blown out by about $2 trillion 
And guess what? The Fed's increased its purchases of treasuries by about $2 trillion. So they're going to come out of this ostensibly with a huge amount of public sector debt, but a huge swagger that's going to be owned by the central bank, which is a related entity. Now, let me give you the classic example of this at work. Japan, because Japan's the poster child for everything we've seen in the developed world for the last uh, really 20 years. And I used to say the world was turning Japanese. Um, in Japan, public sector debt is around about 250% of GDP. That's the number we used to scare the children. The Japanese public sector does hold uh, quite a few financial assets. So if I take that into account, their net debt uh, is around 120, 125% of GDP. Once I take account of what the Bank of Japan holds, their debt is down to about 18% of GDP. What debt problem? Now that means that the perception that all these governments would be ruined if you saw any increase in long-end rates uh, is simply wrong. I mean, but, but so how do they do that? They, so they, let's say their rates go up to let's say they go up to four percent. Yep. Right. So the U.S. government would they just sell more? bonds at the short end constantly year after year at a, at a lower rate or I mean, or they just oh, they, pay they, they the 4% could... and their interest rate would go through the roof with the increased amount of debt that's already in the system? Uh, well, but here's the point, Chris. Um, a huge amount of the interest payments they are making is to the Federal Reserve. And presumably the Federal Reserve repatriates that back to the, to the government as dividends, just like most central banks do. At the end of the day, Central banks have got quite a lucrative core business. It's called printing money. Uh, so every central bank gives dividends to their, to their uh, public authority, the government. Um, what this will just be is literally the left hand putting money in the right hand um, and then the right hand going behind the back and saying, here's the money back. That's why we don't need to oppress to the same extent that we did in the aftermath of the war. We don't need to oppress private sector holders of the debt the people that will effectively be oppressed to the central banks. So what you've really got to look at, therefore, is not the government's total gross debt service costs. What you've got to look at is how much they're paying people other than um, their, their own related entry, their, their own subsidiary, uh, which is the central banks. And that's the metric that uh, really takes account of how much pain they would be in. But even there, look, I mean, to the extent that these central banks have termed out their debt holdings, in other words, um, they've extended the maturity of the bonds on issue. If we were to see overnight 10-year Treasury yields go to 4%, well, that literally in, in, has no immediate impact on, on their debt service. It's only when they start to roll over their issuance and, and issue bonds at that higher yield that they start to bear that cost, and that obviously takes time to flow through. But I tell you what, if we saw 10-year uh, yields in the US at 3%, policymakers presumably would be patting themselves on the back going, the macro conditions that justify 3% absolutely confirm that we are out of this secular stagnation um, risk. So I, I don't think they would fear a slow ascent to 3%. There's ways of getting there, obviously. A disorderly breakup in yields would be a concern. 
But if we got to three or four percent in three or four years, which is actually my base case, um, I think I think they would think mission accomplished. Do you think real yields would still be negative in your base case for the next three or four years, or do you think that at any stage try and get ahead of the inflation curve? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think we would see some moderate increase in real yields, but I think a lot of the the yield increase from here would be um, inflation expectations picking up. I mean, well, given where we are now, you know, we're in a funny position at the moment where despite talk of a growth scare, uh, break-even inflation rates in the US still remain quite high. And, and the reason we're seeing nominal yields decline is that real yields are going further into the negative and just last week got to all-time extreme lows. Um, from those levels, I think real yields will need to pick up. But uh, I don't think real yields will quite reflect the prospective trend, real growth in the economy. Um, and that means break-even inflations will remain quite elevated and potentially go a little higher. And so in terms of the bond market, do you, I think what the, the Fed is buying over 50% of bond issuance in the US currently, is that right? Yeah, of new issuance, yes, that's right. So does it, does it still give you many clues to what's going on in the market or when the central bank is buying the majority of the new issuance of bonds. Has the, the the clues that that used to give you about what's happening in the economy have they sort of evaporated? Uh, no, I, I still think there is a responsiveness in bond markets. Um, obviously, some markets have been con completely anaesthetized by policymakers, and you know, Japan is is a is a great example. I mean, there are days when. The JGB market, Japanese government bond market, that doesn't even trade, which is remarkable because ostensibly it's the largest asset market in the world. Um, but there is still a fairly clear correlation between short-term swings in yields, and by short-term I mean over two or three months, and, and the incoming macro data. So if you look, for example, at well-known um, indices like the Citibank Surprise Index, which tries to gauge where the releases are coming in versus Wall Street consensus, there's still a correlation there. If you get a run of strong data, um, yields will tend to rise. If the data start to disappoint, yields start to come down. Now, that's short-term swings. Should 10-year bond yields be at one and a quarter when you've got real GDP at six or seven? That's a different question. That's a different question. Um, I'd argue that QE probably has put a structural gap between um, you know, some sort of fair value and, and we're actually trading. But even there, I, I don't want to overstate QE. I think other factors are at work. Um, clearly in the aftermath of the GFC, the, um, the demand for safe assets and whether you think treasuries are safe, certainly that's the way regulators designate them. The demand for safe assets has gone up. Um, I think what we've seen over the last six months is a huge reversal in foreign demand for treasuries because, you know, from an American perspective, uh, treasury yields at one and three quarter percent, which is where they were in March, may not look attractive if you've got an economy that's growing at seven or eight percent in nominal terms. I get that. From a foreign perspective, though, they look great value. Um, for a buyer in Japan, they could buy that bond, the 10-year treasury in the States, in March, completely hedge out funding and FX risk and pick up a yield of 1.5%.
may not sound like a lot, but if that compares to a JGB yield that was five basis points, that looks pretty attractive. So we've seen a huge swing in foreign demand for treasuries. Foreigners sold more treasuries in 2020 than they ever have in history. The month of March saw the largest ever one month inflow from foreigners. So those sort of factors are still responsive to, to some sort of fundamental driver. Um, and, and so I think QE obviously is an influence. You can't buy however many trillion of treasuries that the Fed has bought and not have an impact. But I think at the margin, you are still seeing yields respond to some of the usual factors that have driven yields historically. And so just to, to finish up maybe, when you look at what the Fed really wants, uh, and you've sort of touched on a few a few things there, but in, in terms of, I guess, wages, assets, interest rates, and maybe and maybe jobs, what would be their ideal world in, in say, three or four years? What would it look like? And, and do you think that world is possible or do you think they risk mooning the US dollar and, and crushing everything else? Or, or yeah, I, I guess, is, is their desired outcome in three to four years' time attainable from where you sit? I think it's attainable. Let's describe what they would see as the ideal outcome in three or four years' time. First and foremost is not hitting their inflation target. First and foremost is full employment. Now, what they've conceded is they don't know where full employment is. Uh, they thought they knew. A few years ago, they thought 6% unemployment was full employment. Then the unemployment rate got below that, so they lowered it to five and a half, then five. The last cycle, pre-pandemic, we got it down to three and a half, and you still weren't getting the sort of wage pressures coming through that made you thought, oh, gee, we've, we've undershot. So is that because underemployment's such a big thing now? Like someone might work for Uber for 10 hours a week and that's classed as, as they're employed or is it a, a separate issue? Uh, I think it's a factor. I, I think actually what's behind this varies from, from economy to economy. But in the US, um, the labour supply is responsive to price. I mean, as we saw uh, the labour market tighten, we saw new supply come in. In other words, labour participation went up. Um, we're starting to see some regulatory change, and this is all part of the big political theoretical pendulum, which for, for, for two or three decades swung sort of pro-market, pro-capital, neoliberal is swinging back. And part of that is things like minimum wage increases. But we just don't know where it is. So this is a suck it and see approach. We've had three decades where central banks were forward looking and they tried not to get behind the curve, to use the cliche. But... Now they've appreciated, they don't know where full employment is. So they're only going to find it when we're there. And that's almost guarantees some sort of inflation overshoot at some stage. But full employment's the first. Then what they're going to hope is that they can adjust rates so that that inflation overshoot is not so bad and particularly adjust rates so that they don't lead to a hard landing. Now, it pays to bet against the Fed. There's been 12 cycles in the post-war period where they've tightened 10 of them have ended up in recession. So the odds aren't good, but we're talking about the Fed's preferred. Their preferred is they'll be able to normalise rates by getting a controlled slowdown, but not a hard landing. Now, that would be the perfect mix. So we could be sitting there three or four, uh, in three or four years with unemployment wherever it is, but let's say it's three to 4% is full employment. Wages running at three or 4%, inflation at two to two and a half. So you've got real wage growth at one to one and a half. And the Fed funds rate at two and bond yields at three. 
that, that would be J Powell Nirvana, right? Now, can they achieve that? There's a few ifs and buts, but it's not completely unachievable. And the, the key to why it can be achievable now, when it's all been almost inconceivable to have that policy mix over the last 10, 15 years, is that fiscal policy is doing the heavy lifting on the cycle side. It would be impossible for the Fed to do this by itself. If all it had at its disposal were tools like zero interest rates or QE, it wouldn't do it. But with fiscal there buttressing the, the, the growth story, it's completely feasible. Um, but you run into political risks, as I've already alluded to, surrounding the Republicans and the upcoming election. And then you get to the stage of um, can the Fed um, achieve a soft landing? Well, as I said, history bets against that. I think they might have a little better prospect than that, you know, 80% uh, success failure rate suggests, because I don't think we would go into the next late cycle with any serious financial imbalance. The household sector in the US is in terrific shape. Uh, the corporate sector is a little levered, um, so that's where the stresses will be. The public sector is massively levered, but that doesn't matter because there's no way that the, the public sector is ever subject to financial stress because the central banks, they're backstopping them. So I don't think you're going to have an overlay of extreme financial imbalance in this next cycle. And that's always been what has complicated um, achieving a soft landing. So I'm not ruling it out. Um, obviously, it's very bullish to talk about those sort of scenarios, but I think it's feasible. But you know, here we are in 2021. 20, uh, this is really a story for 2023, 2024. I'm not going to have a strong view on how, how that will end up, but it's a prospect. And all, all I would emphasize is it's a very different potential end game to what we've become accustomed to over the last 20, 25 years. And what's changed is the policy mix. And I just think this is a massive structural um, shift from, from the last two or three decades. Before I let you go, so that's sort of a world where inflation is caused by fiscal stimulus more so than, say, the 70s, where it was caused by an increase in commercial bank lending. Would you expect that to be lumpier in terms of the inflation rates than it would be if it was by an increase in in bank lending, which which may be a more consistent sort of flow? Uh, look, I, I think the 70s were very peculiar. Um, I mean, the fact that when we talk about, if I, if I want to talk about depressions, I can, I can give you probably a dozen examples. If I want to talk about recessions, I can give you hundreds of examples. If I want to talk about stagflation, I've got one example. And that really tells you that the the factors behind what we saw in the 70s was a unique mix and not just attributable to things like bank lending. Um, there was a lot of peculiar institutional arrangements. Obviously, the oil shocks were both simultaneously a boost to inflation and an adverse impact on the supply side, you know, which ironically the pandemic was a brief taste of that, but yeah, the, the oil shock was much more severe. Um, so I don't think we're going back there. The, the way I describe it is. Fiscal does this by soaking up the excess saving in the private sector. And the excess saving in the private sector is the core cause of secular stagnation. It's what gives the whole system its, its soggy, disinflationary feel. So fiscal is an effective antidote to that problem. 
Um, but ultimately, you're going to create inflation in a very conventional way. You hit your capacity constraints, particularly in a labour market. You get wage pressures coming through. That feeds into your CPI via service prices and some other components. And that's not necessarily lumpy. The big risk is it becomes sticky. And that is where expectations play a role. What we've found over the last two decades, it's very easy to get inflation back in check when you've had inflation expectations remain established at low levels. If we start to see inflation expectations rise, that's when taps on the brake aren't sufficient. You need to slam on the brake and you know, eradicate those higher inflation expectations, typically through recession. Now, it's too early to have a view, I think, on whether we're going to see that um, sticky inflation unfold. I think it's very likely, almost guaranteed by the way central banks are operating, that we get the wage-based inflation coming through. And that's almost certain to happen because they're telling us they don't know where full employment is. The giveaway of full employment is that we get wage growth that creates inflation. So, yeah, that's... They're putting that at the very start of the process. Um, so we'll get that. It's, it's whether it becomes embedded in the system and therefore they effectively need to overshoot on rates to eradicate it. So that's the way I'm looking at it rather than focusing on the source of credit or taking the 1970s as an analogue. I just don't think the 1970s are an appropriate analogue at this stage. Beautiful, Jared. That's been, it's been amazing, mate. Really appreciate your time. I've loved it. And uh, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. Have a great day and enjoy your freedom down there in Melbourne. Thanks, mate. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.